Hello, and welcome into the Ringerverse from the Ringer. My name is Mallory Rubin. And I'm Van Latham. Mal, before we get started, does anyone want to know what the Ringerverse is? The Ringerverse is one podcast feed with multiple shows on all things superheroes, nerd culture, and fandom entertainment. Instant reactions to new releases, theory breakdowns, fun takes on the latest news, and more. Whether you're a casual fan or an obsessive like us, our shows are worthy of all your fandom needs. So head to the Ringerverse and follow the show now on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by USAA Auto Insurance. Life is full of tough decisions. Thanks to USAA Auto Insurance, picking your auto coverage is not one of them. Make the switch to USAA Auto Insurance and find out how much you could save. Get a quote today. Restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, It's a certified B corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet... You can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified bee corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms. Keeping it bullshit free. The Rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, home of our latest podcast, The Ringerverse which launched last week covering superhero movies, nerd culture, and a whole lot more. If you love the rewatchables, the entire archive is available only on Spotify. You can get everything from the past 60 days. That's available on all platforms. But the entire archive is almost 200 movies at this point available only on Spotify. We'll be getting to 200 soon because we have a lot of good rewatchables coming up. Very excited for it. Might be going two a week, a couple weeks. So be ready for that. Coming up next, don't go in the attic. Just don't. Don't ever go up there. It's not a good place. Insidious is next. Hey, sweetie. (laughs) He's not in a coma. I don't know what to call it. It's not the house that's haunted. It's your son. Insidious. Starts April 1st. Rated PG-13. All right, Chris Ryan is here. Sean Fennessy is here. We're going to talk about Insidious, which is a strangely important and influential movie that also has a great sentence in its Wikipedia page. The story centers on a couple whose son inexplicably enters a comatose state and becomes a vessel for a variety of entities in an astral dimension known as the Further who want to inhabit his body. Fucking boom. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. Got it. Ding. So good. End of pod. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Um, Thanks for listening to the Rewatchables, everybody. We'll be back with Thief next week. <laughs> Fantasy. This film planted the seeds for Blumhouse. That's it right. It slammed the door in the torture porn era, and it officially ushered in the "There's something wrong with the house" era. Where do you want to begin out of those three? 
Um, hmm. Let's talk about the end of the torture porn era because it's related uh, yeah. to the filmmakers, right? Obviously, these are the guys who were behind Saw and Saw was a huge hit and they were trying to make a little bit of a departure from that incredibly gory experience of making Saw. This is James Wan and Lee Winnell, the writer and director of the movie. And they did so. They made a, they made a haunted movie and they, they changed the trajectory of horror for the next 10 years. Where were you guys at with torture porn? I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I think that was the closest I've ever come. And this is really saying something for me to being like, I'm maybe I'm good with horror movies. You know, maybe I'll just watch my favorites and just, and if this is what they're going to be going forward, I may have aged out of this. I felt like in the, by the end of the 2000s, I felt like horror films had died. And we hit between the torture porn and then them making these sequels that were just inferior sequels to movies that were better when they did them in the 70s and 80s. And it, it just felt like every idea had been done. There was nowhere else to go. And um, I hated the torture porn. I thought the first Saw was pretty good, because mainly because of the reveal. It was ingenious. You didn't know, yeah, you didn't know what was happening. It was a great last 15 minutes. And then it just went to... And I remember when they remade Friday the 13th, and they basically made that like a torture porn movie. And... and um, I just hated it. I didn't get it. And it seemed pretty sadistic. Plus they remade Halloween, same way Rob Zombie. And those were just over the top. Not a fan. I wasn't a big fan either. I think there's been, there's been a lot of critical writing about where the country was at that time and how those movies were kind of responding to like being a country at war and the violence that we were kind of becoming inured to because of, you know, Afghanistan and terrorism and a lot of those ideas. But as pure viewing experiences, like I, they were no fun for me personally, and they were no fun to return to. Whereas a movie like this, I find is much more fun to return to. This is one of my my favorite things about genres, though, is the way in which they build on each other. They, the films build on each other, they react to one another, and there are these movements within the genres. It's a lot like music, where you have prog rock, and then punk rock reacts to prog rock, you know. And, and with it, and with horror. I think you really see there was a sort of return to basics because it's just like, how many times can you watch a guy's Achilles getting cut? You know? <laughs> right. Uh, it's horror would have these stretches. And I think this would happen in other movie genres too. Cause like in the early eighties, if you go back and you just watch like even like the Clint Eastwood movies or whatever, different type of horror movies, they really crossed the line with with how they treat women in the movies. Not it, not that they're not crossing the line in other horror movies, but it's really exploitative, like kind of shockingly so. And even like you look at some of the comedies back then, there's this whole run of high school getting laid movies where it's like Porky's and stuff like that, that none of those movies will get made now, but they did comedies a certain way, right? It was like, let's throw some nudity in here. Let's give guys everything. Let's Let's check off these boxes. And then all of a sudden that ended. And I look at the torture porn era that way now, where it's like, this was a thing for five, six years. And then it's just gone. Like you barely see it anymore. There was that movie maybe like four or five years ago that was a slight parody of these movies about the the girl that worked in like the sex worker's house where you're having virtual sex with people. And then somebody showed up and it's like Texas Chainsaw Man. I forget the name of it. But that was pretty good, actually. But that very rarely do you have those movies. Most of these have drifted toward there's something wrong with the house, which we covered in The Conjuring, and really doesn't get old. Yeah, I, th I think you make a really good point, Bill, which is that this, I feel like those movies, the torture porn movies, were the culmination of this 30, 35-year history of 
you know, American and European movies attempting to titillate their audiences. And so, like, in Grindhouses, you had all these movies in the 70s that were extremely violent or extremely sexualized. And, you know, they were just trying to I basically... Your grave, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, trying to lure men into movie theaters at 11 p.m. and, like, get their rocks off. And the way to do that was to push it farther and farther and farther. And torture porn feels like the some conclusion of that. And then there was a reset. You know, like, this feels like a reset. And it's interesting to see the reset comes at such a low budget point, you know, because obviously there needed to be this, that, that was sort of part of the negotiation, right? It was like, you don't need to give us that much money to make a movie that's really intense. I think looking at the library, this might be the cheapest movie we've ever done on the rewatchables. Yeah. One and a half. And, yeah. and you could make the argument, I, I can't quite do the math here, but like, I would argue that James Wan might be the most profitable director of the century. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, he's got a crazy CV, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. So they, I spit on your grave. The remake was also 2010. And it's like when these, here's the fork, right? Because that was also weirdly a torture porn movie, even though it was a remake of another movie. That movie is a really hard watch. Like there's just a horrible over the top rape scene in it. And Everything about it is over the top. And I feel like that's what... What was that other movie where it was like the house at the end of the street or whatever where... Is that Last House on the Left? Last House on the Left. That, they remade that one too. And it's like... Uh, that is was Jennifer another one Lawrence that, in that? No. No, that was a different one. This one had... It had a really bad sexual assault scene in it that's just way over the line. It's actually a pretty good movie. And it you wonder like, why did you do that? Like, you know, you could have like insinuated that you did that. They just go all in. And it feels like starting in 2010, things flip. Well, and there's a there, there was a generation of talented filmmakers who were making some of those movies, you know, like Alexandra Aja and and Eli Roth and guys who who were good filmmakers, but who were basically born into this era. And so while they loved those movies, those 70s and 80s movies, by paying homage to them, they had to like ratchet them up and up and up. And I, I, it definitely seems like audiences just got sick of them. You know, I don't think it was like a moral outrage that ended them. It was just that they weren't as successful as they were in 2005. Hostel was another one. Mm -hmm. he, you know, part of the problem with this is they made money. Like the Saw movies printed money, weren't expensive to make. Hostel made money. They ended up having Hostel 2 and maybe even Hostel 3. But people were watching these and they were, it's basically the end of the rental era right around now, right? Like 2005-ish. But it was more of a pay-per-view streaming era type thing. That's that that starts. There's hints of that era coming in here, and it's I don't know. I I think that Bill, there's also like I I always kind of think about that these two movies, Cabin Fever and Cabin in the Woods. You know, and Cabin Fever was this Eli Roth movie that's really grotesque. I actually do quite like that one, but it is really really gross. And then Cabin in the Woods was this sort of signal towards. It was a move towards more like comedic and character-driven horror that I think has served horror well to like mix that in a little bit. When we did The Conjuring, I think that we talked a lot about like you actually do care about about the characters in the in those movies and that's a huge huge boost for 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 those films because they are just haunted house movies. If you don't care if it's just like some random person wandering the desert who gets attacked by cannibals, like the intensity of it is pretty is is pretty palpable. It's really a visceral experience, but you don't really remember it or have any feelings towards it. So torture porn was predated by the uh, the scream era, and them pulling all the high school age people in there and them just getting that going for five six years, and eventually went into this and the sequels era. And I was old enough to remember the original movies. Some of the sequels made me mad. Like, guess what? 
we we didn't need to remake The Omen. The Omen's a freaking classic. Granted, I watched it. Granted, I've watched it a couple times probably since it came out, but they just went through they went through all the boxes, right? They redid Friday the 13th, they redid Halloween, they just they checked them all off and it did feel like horror movies were done by the end of the 2000s. And so something wrong with the house. We did this on the Conjuring and do it again. It starts really with Amityville Horror. The Changeling, The Entity, Poltergeist. That's all between 79 and 82. Huge break. Comes back in 2001 with The Others, The Grudge, Skeleton Key. Then we move 07. This is another thing that's happening, the found footage gimmick, which Blair Witch starts, kind of dies, comes back strong with Paranormal Activity in 2007. Insidious comes out 10 years ago, uh, April 1st. And... Insidious 2011, Sinister 2012, Conjuring 2013, then we're off. And I feel like this can keep going. I just feel like people are always going to be interested when there's something wrong with the house. I don't think this ends. I don't think it has a beginning, middle, end like torture porn did. I think this just goes. I think the genius of this movie is that it isn't just there's something wrong with the house. It's there's something wrong with the kid, right? That that was the marketing scheme behind it. So it's a combination of The Exorcist and the Amityville Horror. Like, and mm. they basically fused those two movies and then made a low budget horror movie with really good actors. It's a genius plan. You know, I, I, it's actually weird to now see a movie that has Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne in it that costs $1.5 million. It, it, there, it almost doesn't connect because, like, you can tell that it's a cheaply made movie. There's yeah, a definitely. lot of handheld camera, there's a lot of, like, kind of mediocre effects, but it doesn't really take you out of the movie. It's just, it's very cleverly constructed. The, uh, the Rose Byrne thing, we, I know we talked about her a lot with, with neighbors. But I was kind of wa- I was watching this movie the other night, and I was like, "How cheap would a movie have to be for Rose Byrne to be bad in it? Like, <laughs> she's really good in in this, in, in Insidious. Yeah. Like, she's really believable. And and I think you know we talk about there's something wrong with the house. There's something wrong with the kid. The other crucial part of Insidious is there's something wrong with the dad. Yep. And Rose Byrne on a strong pace to win rewatchables 2021 MVP. <laughs> three Rose Byrne movies. It's not even April. <laughs> Uh, she's great. The, her and Patrick Wilson together. Rose Byrne really and Michael good. Mann just, <laughs> just sitting on Rushmore, rewatchables Rushmore, Rushmore. It is funny, though, with different horror movies, the better the actor in the movie, if the premise, the premise can come and go depending on whatever the movie is. But I think they start to realize around this movie that, hey, we should actually get better actors for this, you know, which is something they were kind of doing a little bit in the 70s. Like when, That's right. When Amityville Horror gets made, it's Margot Kidder coming off Superman and it's James Brolin, who is kind of a thing. And they, you know, they're, they're two of the reasons why that movie's actually really good and I think has held up. But they kind of got away from that. They started using TV stars and Saw's just using like kind of those guys or people like Carrie Elwes, like people that never really totally made it. Like they were, they were always going to cheap out on this. The casting gets better around 2010, it seems like. I was thinking about that when you mentioned The Changeling. You know, The Changeling is basically just George C. Scott losing his mind in a mansion for two hours, but it's great because yeah. it's George C. Scott screaming and he's so captivating. And it is a hack that like, I'm really glad that we've gotten back to. And part of that too is, you know, we've talked about this a lot over the years with the horror movies, but these are some of the only movies that are still successful. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a good idea from a career perspective to be a part of one of these franchises. Yeah, and I think that if you're somebody like Rose Byrne, if you're somebody like Ethan Hawke, and you're interested in doing smaller budget, artier movies that may not pay as well, it pays a lot to be to have profit participation in a $1 million movie that's going to make $115 million. I mean, you, you pretty much guarantee a high 
tens to low hundreds box office if you make one of these movies. So they nail a couple things. They nail the timing. It's one of the best horror movie scores. My son, my son is adamant that he thinks this is the single scariest score other than Shining and Amityville Horror. He has this third. Um, he got. We watched it in our little ba- in back house where I'm doing this pod right now, which has better sur- stereo surround sound. And he got like freaked out at one point. He actually moved seats to sit next to me. <laughs> uh, it's it was composed by uh, Joseph Bashara, who also appears in the film as the demon. So incredible. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> Bo Jackson level performance by that guy. So we know who won the movie. And they're basically they're putting together the score. They're like, how do we make this scary? Just like violins. They end up using 39 violins. And guess why? Because violins are fucking scary if you <laughs> if you do them correctly. So the score is great. The premise, which is basically Dalton is astral traveling in his sleep. Who the astral fuck projection. knew what astral traveling yeah, yeah. was? As one does. Uh thought he was dreaming, but he turned out he traveled too far and was captured in a purgatory realm called the Further, a place inhabited by the tortured souls of the dead, his body appears comatose, but the spirits desire to use it so they can enter the physical world. It's fucking unassailable. They nail the uh, Patrick Wilson, younger Rose Byrne thing. They're great together. They have James Wan, who's I think one of the better directors of the past 40 years of this stuff. And then the Blumhouse era, Jason Blum is a producer and he's watching all of this and he's saying, oh, so this, what did this movie end up making? It was 1.5 million. It made 99.5 million. They shot it in three weeks. And he's looking at this going, hmm. And 20, you know, 10 years later, Blumhouse is Blumhouse. But so you have that piece too. So the big name that we have to mention here, Bill, is Oren Pelly. So he's the guy who's, he works as a producer on this movie and he also does paranormal activity. He's this Israeli uh, producer, writer. He's directed a couple of things. And then you go through his filmography and there's a lot of CRVOD classics on this Chernobyl diaries. And like, he just does a lot of found footage stuff, but I think he brings a kind of run and gun sensibility he, he he helps out a lot in that in that sense with Insidious. It's not a found footage movie, but at times feels like it. Like some of the sort of action set pieces of Insidious definitely feel like found footage, and that vibe essentially gives it rebirth. It's like a rebirth for the genre. Chernobyl Diaries season nineteen of the rewatchables. <laughs> Is Craig still working here in two thousand forty one? I like the movie he directed called Area Fifty One. He's got a lot of really really solid found footage horror. I movies. like the Bay. Chris and I both. You seen the Bay, Bill? The Barry, yeah, the Barry Levinson, Levinson horror one? movie, yeah. found footage horror movie. I don't know if I know that one. Why don't I know that one? It was twenty twelve. It was right at like the peak of this moment, and it. I think it's like set in Baltimore, like all Barry Levinson movies, and it's about um. It's about like a uh, the Chesapeake like a, gets infected. Yeah, biochemical uh, meltdown. It's it's really gnarly, but I think you would like it. I feel like the found footage era shouldn't really have petered out. I felt like we had more areas like Chernobyl to me expanded my horizons for where we could go. Like mental hospital, the abandoned mental hospital that they're going to remake into condos. <laughs> and there's and the the construction crew starting work there, and it's a found footage thing. Like that could have worked. The prison, the prison from mm. like the because in Boston they have this uh, this hotel downtown that I'm blanking on now that was a converted prison, and I always thought like the construction of turning that old prison into a hotel could have been like an awesome. $1 million budget. But I, my point is, bring these back. How often do you go somewhere and think to yourself, this could be a found footage horror movie? 
<laughs> at least twice a week. <laughs> I mean, shit, I went to Major Domo last night in this really, this part of LA that after like nine o'clock, you're like, holy shit, where am I? And you could feel like you could do it there. You could do it anywhere. As Chris um, knows, I had my window smashed out in that area of town a couple of years ago. So, you know, maybe we should make a fun footage movie about that. Tough night. <laughs> about the guy who broke into your car? Yeah. Well, it was a ghost. It was a ghost who did it. So, uh, movie was written by Lee Wannell. Juan directed that Saw movie in 2004, the first one. And you mentioned this at the top, but it's an important point. He felt like he was pigeonholed by the Saw gimmick and people thought of him as like the torture poor guy and really wanted to figure out how do I make a scary movie that doesn't do the torture porn stuff. It worked. Roger Ebert, two and a half stars out of four. Quote, it depends on characters, atmosphere, sneaky happenings, and mounting dread. This one is not terrifically good, but moviegoers will get what they're expecting. Kind of a lukewarm. I, I felt like he yeah. undersold it a little bit. I think that's accurate, though. You know, this is a very satisfying down the middle movie. It's not some like incredible work of art. It's just a very well made, low budget horror movie that, if that's what you want on your Friday night, it will deliver for you. It will give you a demon. It will give you the further. It will give you scary that crazy movie. score. It's a it's scary, scary movie. Scary music. I mean, yeah. yes. The thing um, that th this movie also does a really good job of suggesting. Future movies, suggesting sequels, suge suggesting that there could be a franchise, that there's a lot more to find out about a lease or about the further. But you don't need to worry about that. Like, you don't need... I, I think Sean and I were texting last night, like, oh, are you going to watch the second one before we do the pod? But you can watch them as standalones. Like, you don't need to get too deep into the, the further mythology. Totally agree. Um, before we take a break and go to the categories, I have a Roger Ebert story. I've been watching on Pluto... I keep checking the Johnny Carson channel to see who the guests are because the seventies and eighties, it's like, it, it's like traveling into this alternate universe where people can make inappropriate jokes and it's just, you don't even know what's going on. They showed this one, Roger, Siskel and Ebert are on a 1986 December show and they're, and they're talking about like the movies that are about to come out, what they liked, what they didn't like best movie of the years. Chevy Chase was the guest before them because he's promoting Three Amigos. <laughs> so they go through, they go through the whole thing. And Johnny says, is there a movie coming out that you feel like actually maybe isn't as good as people are going to think? Ebert takes a pause and goes, I mean, no offense to Chevy, but I think Three Amigos. <laughs> oh I felt God. like it. And fucking starts torching Three Amigos. And I went on YouTube to send it to you guys and I couldn't find it. Uh, What's so Chase's now, reaction? So he he's doing that kind of smug Chevy Chase. You don't know if he's on some sort of narcotic or not, but just kind of like in disbelief. And they're like, all due respect, all due respect to Chevy. But, you know, I just felt like it was kind of a gimmicky premise. It didn't really work that well. I think audiences will like it, but I didn't think it was a very good movie. And then Carson's like, you could see Carson like, how do I save this? So he's like... <laughs> So, so what's your favorite Chevy Chase movie? Like he tries to go positive on it, which is exactly how I would have played it as a host. So Cisco goes, I really like Vacation. Oh no, Cisco goes, Fletch. I think Fletch was the best Chevy Chase movie. So Chevy's pissed. He's like, I agree. But you can see he's like <laughs> fucking fuming. And then, and then Ebert's like, I also really like Vacation. And Chevy's like, yeah, that was a good one. But he's like, you could tell he just wants to go off on these guys. It was unbelievable. I highly recommend Carson Classics on Pluto. 
what is the what is the modern version of that? That's that's you guys. You you guys go on Fallon or Kimmel, and you sit down, and who's the guest? Like Ryan Reynolds, and you and, and we just start talking about how Deadpool uh, yeah. sucks. Yeah, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds is putting out Deadpool four. <laughs> I don't. It, it just would never happen. Now you would never have a situation. The modern version of that is like Shaq gets Donovan Mitchell on after a jazz win, and is just like, wow. "What are you going to do to be a like a better player and a better closer? <laughs> yeah. Why aren't you good enough yet? And why is Rudy a Frenchman?" <laughs> That's a really good example too that of the Roger thing, where like he was just like sometimes downright wrong. Like Three Amigos is good, but he he had integrity. He was like, "This is what yeah. I believe, and I will say it to your face." That's amazing that he did that. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, we're going to take a break, come back with the categories. This episode is brought to you by USAA Insurance. When you're a homeowner in the military community, peace of mind is priority. And USAA Homeowners Insurance has the award-winning service to give you just that. If you have to file a claim, the process is transparent and easy. You can do it all right in the USAA app. And replacement cost coverage comes standard. That means damaged items are repaired or replaced even if they cost more today than they did when you bought them. Which could put your wallet at ease too, by the way. Tap the banner or visit usaa.com slash homeowners to learn more and get a quote. Restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring comes with a lot of chores because, you know, spring cleaning. One thing you can clean up right away, your phone bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. They have unlimited talk, text, data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. $15 a month. That's like, you can subscribe to two movie channels for that. I mean, what a great deal. Also, super easy to switch plans. Everyone gets so intimidated by, oh my God, I don't know if I should switch my plan. It's not that hard. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash rewatch. That's us. That's mintmobile.com slash rewatch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for a first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, most rewatchable scene. First one I have written down is kid falls off the ladder. Dalton, honey, where are you? Stay here, Foster, stay with your sister. Dalton? This kind of sets everything up. Um, this does a lot of good stuff. More importantly, the attic is incorporated correctly. I think one of the keys with these movies, it can't just be don't go in the attic. It That attic has to look, it's got to have a high enough ceiling. There's got to be light trickling in from different spots. You have a fucking ladder. The ladder goes to another level. Like, why is there a ladder in an attic? Where are you going? You're in an attic. Where's the ladder going to? A, a second attic? Isn't the furnace also in the attic in this house? Oh, it's, it's, it's so creepy all I've over the place. I've never seen that before, I don't think. A furnace in the attic. Did you guys grow up in houses with attics? No, uh, I well, my grandparents had one in their f- house in Florida, and it, I used to go up there, and it was just like it was like the uh, to me when I was like a young kid, the attic was like the warehouse in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I would like walk through and be like, "Oh my god, a a watch and a baseball card." You know, <laughs> we have one in the house. I'm in. I've been in for the since my kids grew up in, and 
probably like seven years ago, we would hear these noises up there. And it sounded like somebody running, like like a little kid like running in the attic. And we were like completely freaked out. Like, what the fuck is that? And you could hear it and you could it was something definitely up there. Was it nephew Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> it was not. My uh so my son and my daughter who love horror movies and their dream was like to have a ghost in our house, right? There's a ghost and they're just going nuts. So we had we send a exterminate and it was rats. Oh, we had rats in our sheesh. attic. Yeah. I was, was I was hoping you were like, if the exterminator doesn't work, we'll get Ghostbusters. <laughs> no, is it we I was thinking that way. I was going through all my horror movie premise. But yeah, there were some couple rats because we had Ivy going up the side of one of the houses and a couple and then all of a sudden it was a free-for-all. But uh there was this two-week period where we were like, I you can't emphasize how scary it is to just be lying in bed or something and you just hear a noise and you're like, what the fuck was that? I, th I think the attic aspect of the movie is important too because in The Conjuring, it's a basement movie and that's an mm -hmm. East Coast movie and this is an attic movie and this is a West Coast movie and we don't have basements in California. We have attics right. and attics are fucking scary. <laughs> They're always yeah. scary. Another crucial part about how scary this movie is and this was done, Mike Flanagan does this really well with Ouija, the second Ouija movie he made, but mm. cra craftsman houses are fucking scary. Because they're, they're creaky and drafty and old and there's a lot of wood. So every step makes a sound. And uh, yeah, I think that that's like a under underutilized part of haunted house movies is like different, Agree. different styles. Next rewatchable scene I have is the first evil baby monitor scene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you guys don't have kids yet. The, the baby monitor thing, it's on all the time. I I can't tell you how fucking scary it would be if all of a sudden you're you're just watching TV in a different room and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're about to fuck off the girl. And you're like, what the fuck is that? Why is that coming out of the baby monitor? Uh, I just think that that works every time. And it's been it's a device that's been used in a couple different horror movies. Every time baby monitor stuff works. Over under 10 times you thought Ben was haunted in his youth. Oh, yeah. Under. Okay. Okay. Only like maybe three where you're like, wow, we might have to get a priest. We have Damien. <laughs> <laughs> three. Uh, next rewatchable, uh, when they decide to move houses and they go to the new house and Rose is kind of getting, and she's outside and she sees somebody in the house and then there's somebody dancing in the house and then people running and just that whole thing where the realization, oh shit, this thing's following us. Mm -hmm. Is that the Tiny Tim song playing? Yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah I mean, that yeah. that is like the creepiest part of the movie to me. It's in broad daylight. It's amazing, that needle drop. Yeah, it's funny. Broad daylight can sometimes be more effectively scary than 3 a.m., you know? I, I just love the idea that it's the people that are haunted and not the house. And that, because in The Conjuring, I think isn't, if I remember correctly, it's like a lot of it is like they've tied up all their money in the house so they can't, they can't really leave. Yeah. And the idea that like when you're watching these haunted house movies, you're just like, guys, just, just, just move. Just leave. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can't, you can't if it's going to follow you. Barbara Hershey's story is really good. And it's Cru fun having her in this. Crucial piece of information that she might've wanted to share with Josh. Yeah, maybe could have told him a little bit earlier. Um, I like that she's in this because of the entity, which is one of the most fucked up, craziest horror movies probably ever made. And 
she's one of the better actresses I think that's carried a horror movie. So I like the legacy of her being in this. She so the movie she's in it's called The Entity, which is on Amazon. I would not watch this one with your children, people listening out there. This is an adult <laughs> horror movie that is really fucked up and not that fun to watch, but like kind of offset, off-putting. Like you don't feel right after you watch it. That was, uh, it next that, was, we watch, that was kind of her comeback too, right? Like she had kind of disappeared. She married David yeah. Carradine and then disappeared from movies for a while. And then she came back and then she has this like run in the 80s where she's in a bunch of, you know, Hoosiers and all these famous mm-hmm. movies. Um, and it's funny that she she also used a horror movie to like, springboard back into her career. You know, it's a tried and true uh, move that that actors make. There was a weird thing going on in the early 80s because this happened with Dress to Kill too, where, because everything had a nude scene in the early 80s and Angie Dickinson was in Dress to Kill. And Dress to Kill, we'll have to debate whether we ever do that in the rewatchables because there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. It's a tough one. But they, they, uh, they have a nude scene at the beginning. She's in the shower and this whole thing, but they use a body double. And when the movie came out, it was a big deal that it wasn't Angie Dickinson. It came out, it was a body double and it became part of the marketing of the movie. And it was the same thing with the entity with Barbara Hershey. Cause she has this scene where she's sexually assaulted by a ghost. And it's like a way, way, way over the top scene, but she's naked on the bed and you can see the ghost like pushing down on her breast basically, but they weren't her breasts. And it was a whole thing of, how do they do this? She she said, I'm not going to be naked in the movie. So they had to build this whole fake body thing. And it kind of became the marketing of the movie. My point is the early 80s were super weird. Well, the best thing about that is, is the movie that, that Brian De Palma made after that is called Body Double. And it opens with a body <laughs> double sequence where he's there's literally a right. director shooting a body double sequence. And that was part of the inspiration for that movie, which is great. Now, Body Double might be a rewatchable. Incredible so. movie. One of my favorites. I fucking absolutely love that movie. Um, Okay, next next rewatchable scene. The revelation, it's not your house. <laughs> it's your son. <laughs> your son is in a coma. Falling off a ladder had nothing to do with this. His physical body is here. But his spiritual body is not. And the reason these disturbances, they followed you to a new home, is because it's not the house that's haunted. It's your son. Always great when they when they do the swerve. It's like oh, one of those. Um, the gas mask scene. Oh, my God, you, mommy, and daddy, help, 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 help. Great when detail. all hell breaks loose and the fucking face liquor shows up. Never seen Who, that what's before. What's scarier than a fucking face li- liquor? <laughs> <laughs> Just the idea, though, like that that's her equipment. Because I, I love how her and Specs and Tucker have like this kind of like old school analog equipment to detect the, the, the paranormal activity in the house. Was that what Larry Mintunsel was wearing or was that something else <laughs> when, when he got caught? Hey, actually, Larry Mintunsel was paying tribute to his, his love of Insidious. That was what people didn't understand about that incident. Next rewatchable scene, the pictures when they realize the ghost figures in the pictures. Yeah. Love a, that. Detail they skip over. 
incredible premise. Why do you think Barbara Hershey's character was sitting on that, not letting her son know that <laughs> in the event that his son was haunted, maybe she should wait two months before he <laughs> repels even further into the further? Like, what was the thinking there? I had that in Picket Nets. So we might as well do it now. I, I'll just tell you this. Like, if Ben or Zoe, my two kids... If I have concerns about the ghost that's in every picture I take with them, I'm probably bringing that up before they have their own kids. I'm just going to let them know. You know, but we're making such great advancements in digital photography. You wonder whether or not you can get um, a ghost remover filter going on on <laughs> iPhoto soon, and you're just going to be able to erase that from their their memories. But imagine the, the clarity in portrait mode, you know? You'd know. see them so crisply. <laughs> I was thinking of favorite horror movie gimmicks. And this movie hits three of them, right? The attic, just going into the attic. I love the the baby monitor. I always love that. And then looking at the picture a second time, and there's something in it that you didn't realize was in it. Those are like runners up. Those are like silver bronze medalists for my favorite horror movie gimmick. My single favorite horror movie gimmick is when there's something a specific time of the day that triggers some. Like I thought Amityville Horror when he would wake up at three fifteen every day. At 3.15 in the morning, he would just wake up in a cold sweat. That fucked me up more than anything that's ever been in a horror movie. I, When I was a kid, I would wake up, and if it was like 2.59, I would just be like, oh my God, it's going to be 3.15 and 16 minutes. I've got to fall back asleep. Like Nothing is more effective Could than that. Could you fall back asleep? Sometimes I would just lie there and then it would turn 315 and I would just be like looking at the ceiling. Like I definitely should not have seen some of the horror movies I saw when I was a kid. But uh, I really like the time of day. Uh, last rewatchable scene, Patrick Wilson saves his son. And then I guess he could say the ending too. What's your favorite scene, Chris? Uh, a bunch of those are good. I really like the the Lin Shay, like the seance scene with the the gas mask. I also just want to throw a special shout out for when Rose Byrne discovers the handprint on the sheets because it's like it, at first she's just worried that he's bleeding a little bit or something's wrong with him and then she like uncovers it and it's like it's it's this handprint it's like uh, this is this is really bad that that's a great creepy moment Sean what are your top five bloody handprint moments in your own life <laughs> in my own life uh, most of all of them happen after a Jets loss <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're all sports related, certainly. Um, my the, the one other uh, there's two Barbara Hershey scenes I think that are that are important. There's the one where she tells everyone what was really going on with Josh when he was growing up. But there's the previous one where she sits down at the kitchen table and Patrick Wilson's character is still unbelieving, mm -hmm. and that's when we have what I thought in the theater was like one of the scariest scenes I'd ever seen, which is that first demon reveal. There's like the hard cut. It shows Patrick Wilson and like crouched behind him is the demon. And I I definitely spilled my Coke all over myself while I was watching the movie the first time. Like it's <laughs> yeah. really well done and it ha features that loud bang on the piano and the violin and that score. And like it made me think about while I was watching the movie what it would be like to watch the edit of the movie without any music on it. And would it be would it work at all? Like I honestly don't know if the movie. I wonder works if they had music. like a mock score, or they had they had an idea of what they were going to do and how they were going to punctuate those jump scares because they're so it's so integral to the to the fear factor of the movie. Yeah, I think uh, I personally have the the whole gas mask scene and the face liquor. I think it's my go that. favorite part. I I'm going with that. all the uh, all the writing down of like the the translating what they're saying and stuff. I'm going to rip your innards out. Yeah. What's age the best? Mention a few of those things. The uh, the music is my answer for what's age the best. I, I just think they crushed the score. But a couple other things. Really good looking creepy house. 
I think if Amityville Horror is a 10 out of 10 on a creep, the Amityville Horror House will never be topped. Like it actually looks like two eyes when you re- when they show it at night. The two lights in the attic that are always on for some reason, and it looks like the house is looking at you. That's a 10. I have this as like an eight and a half. Couple where, wide shots of the house, you're like, oh man, I don't know if I would live in that house. Where do you think the, is that the valley? Where do you think that is? Uh, I think they shot the interiors downtown. I don't know that that must I, that looked like Pasadena to me, or maybe the valley. Oh, Pasadena, that makes because yeah. Pasadena has a lot of those craftsmen. Uh, another would say the best Patrick Wilson's horror IMDb. Yeah, Insidious one, two, and three, Scream King, right Conjuring here. one and two, Annabelle comes home, The Nun. Lakeview Terrace with Sam Jackson, which I guess is a thriller, but I'm counting it. Young Adult, which is basically a horror movie with Charlize. I, that's a, that movie's as scary as half of the ones I just mentioned. And then he played Naked Ping Pong and Girls with Lena Dunham, which was a crazy scene too. But uh, what an IMDb for him. I, I don't think he gets enough credit as like the horror movie king, basically. Jamie Lee Curtis, we know, is Scream Queen. Like I don't know, is he like the... Scream King? I don't know what, what's a better phrase than Scream King. I like it. I mean, like, I if he invested his money right off of these, he could buy the Timberwolves. Like, <laughs> oh, it would what? be like Bitcoin, right? If he had just <laughs> taken one point in every movie, he'd be, <laughs> he'd buy the Lakers. He's like horror daddy, you know. He just he, he knows what he's doing. He also he had that great cameo in that movie, The Assistant, that very complicated movie where he plays like famous actor in the elevator and like riffs on his persona, and like everybody thinks he's such a nice guy. He seems like such a nice guy, which is why he's so effective in all these movies, right? He's like just an innocent kind of like, I don't know, I'm just going about my day. And then all of a sudden these ghosts jumped inside me and took me to the spectral plane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so in that movie, it's really funny that he plays like himself as an asshole because we just don't, we don't picture that. Are we, do we think he had the right career or could have been a slightly better career or did he overachieve? He's too handsome. Like there's there's a extent to which he has to be like the leading man. Like I, it's hard for him to play like character roles. It, it's, he's not really like a. Maybe he'll age into like his Saul Rubinek phase, but like right now, it's like he just has to play like the 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 sort of this this the prototypical leading man. So you don't see him with a Fu Manchu in season two of Bear Town, <laughs> <laughs> playing some American assistant who moves to Sweden. But the he's got hand, a secret. The handful of times when he's gotten a chance, though, I like like I like little children. That movie yeah. with him and Kate, Kate Winslet. I feel like he's very good in that. That movie's good. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I actually think he's underrated. He seems like he's due for a prestige TV. I mean, like, he's good in Fargo, but, like, he's he's due for his own series. I remember Reitman loved him. Because I think Young Adult's really good. I really like that movie, and, and he's good in it. But I remember Reitman thought he was really good. Uh, another What's Age the Best, we mentioned Barbara Hershey, but there's something about her that's just super creepy. Like she's really effective in the natural as the lady in black, which is this nothing part, right? All she does is just, she wears black and she's creepy, but there's something about her face where you just feel like this person's a stay away. I can't put my (laughs) finger on it. But so then when you see her in a movie like beaches, she's still kind of carrying that with her where you're just like, there's something about you. I just don't instinctively want to have my guard up. She's, um, she's very serious and very grave. You don't get a sense that she has much of a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Any other what's age the best for you guys? Uh, I mean, I mentioned Rose Byrne's performance, but even yep. in the beginning, especially when she's doing like a little bit of like her music and then she's like talking to Patrick Wilson about like, oh, I'm going to try and get some some songs together. Like, it, she's just like utterly believable in like a very like short period of time. It makes you 
really deeply care about her. And I think, you know, we'll talk, I think that this is both a what stage the best and what stage the worst, but kind of blown away with what they did with the budget. You know, the amount of stuff that they are able to squeeze out of such a small budget. And then also there's some laughs with like some of the stunt work. And I'm sure we could talk about that soon. What stage the worst? I mean, my biggest one here is, I think the first 60% of the film is just better than the last 40%. Agree. Mm -hmm. The first, I don't know, this is an hour and a half. The first hour, the way they set it up. And I don't know if that says more about just what I like in a movie, but I love the setup so much more than the, we're going to fix this at the end and we're going to get through this. I just like the people gradually realizing something is wrong. There are very few horror movies that can do both. That can yep. do the setup and the payoff. And when you can do it, you're the exorcist. You know, like or when the you, shining, right? Yeah, the exactly. shining is the ultimate example of like talk about a payoff. Yeah. Did we do the shining? We did. Yes. Yeah. We've done so many rewatchables movies, I couldn't even remember if we've done the shining. We definitely I mean it was like that was a great one. It was a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to listen to that one again. <laughs> I <think I> podcast <laughs> Alzheimer's. I've done so many podcasts, I don't even remember what, what we've done. Um Another what's age the worst. You mentioned the budget. I obviously the special effects. If you're doing this in 2021 with 10 million instead of 1.5, the special effects are just going to be better. It's more. It more stands out when you see like in the seance scene and the guys are getting thrown across the room and they like. It's just obviously Patrick Wilson like jumps backwards three feet. He's like, yeah. oh no, I've been tossed to the ground by a ghost. It's like those pro wrestling in the 80s when the guys are just completely overselling some of the moves, not <laughs> realizing right. that the WWE network is coming 40 years later. Um, any other what's age the worst? Um, I think this movie's aged pretty well, to be honest. Not really. I mean, it's still effective. I still enjoyed it last night. Yeah. Uh, all right. Taking one more break, then we're going to do the rest of the categories. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, it's a certified bee corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified bee corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what sounds good after a long day? Ice cream. I love ice cream. Right now is the perfect time to get some. Sonic has half price shakes every night after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. Just think of it, all that creamy, soft serve, hand-mixed, their favorite flavors for half the price in any size. Listen, a lot of people like goofy shakes. I like vanilla shakes. You can throw 40 flavors at me. You know what I'm going to order? You know what I love the most? Vanilla shakes. It's perfect because me and my family, at least once a week, we still all get ice cream together when we're together. Grab Sonic Half Price Shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. All right, casting what ifs. This film was originally going to be named The Further. Hmm. Which leads to the question, should they have just called this movie The Further? I think Insidious is a better horror title. 
I, I love that moment when Lynn Shea is describing what's going on and she uses the word insidious and, and it's the like Leo from Once Upon a Time moment where you point at the screen and you're like, <laughs> yes, that, the title of the film. Also, insidious uh, you know, is, I forgot is a great to put word. that in What's Age the Best. It's great stuff. I, you, you, as you know, I love nothing more than when the title is organically used in dialogue. Sean, you're I right. think that that should be a rewatchables category is the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen moment. <laughs> <laughs> No, the best one ever is Face Off. Yeah. Yes. Take his face. Where they, they face off. off. <laughs> face off. Casting what ifs. One more. This is a good one. Ethan Hawk turned down the lead role. Oh. But Fitch one year later, to, takes on Sinister. And then and, and takes on Sinister, which is not as good of a movie as Insidious, in my opinion. I, um, I don't think it's as far off though. No. I like I like Sinister a lot. The but it's just interesting so that similar. he's like He's like, eh, I'm good. I don't want to do. I don't want to do your little haunted house movie. And then a year later, it's like, man, I shouldn't have done that haunted house movie. They're like, here's the script to Sinister. He's like, done. Call my lawyer. I'm in. So, I is this movie better with Ethan Hawke? I don't know. I we all love Ethan Hawke, so it's a tough one. But I say yes. I think all movies are better with Ethan Hawke. I, I agree. I think it's also one of the things that really is effective when you're watching it is just the the little ways in which Patrick Wilson is off, especially once you know the full story of it and you go back and rewatch it and you can kind of pick up on his his tics and his behaviors and his like, yeah, I'm just going to stay at work. It's like, what do, you, yeah. what do you mean you're just going to stay at work? Your wife is being chased by a demon. Grading some papers. <laughs> yeah. Um, best that guy, I okay, the Joey Pants Award. I'm going to say this is maybe number one for me all time for a, a that guy. So the lady who plays Elise, the kind of psychic person, her name is Lynn Shea. Mm -hmm. Do you know what other movie she was in? It's an iconic comedy and she has a memorable part. And it came out in the 90s. Well, there's there's two. There's there's two of these. It's I mean, there's Kingpin. Yeah. <laughs> And then also there's something about Mary, right? That's like the double the double header of Farrelly Brothers movies. She's Magda in There's Something About Mary. I just couldn't believe that. I never in a million years would have put that together with this movie that it was the same actress. Magda, for people listening, that's the super tan one who has the dog that attacks Matt Dillon. She's Cameron Diaz's friend. And they make her intentionally awful. You could see like her... They, it's like special effects boobs at one point because she's like sunbathing and she's just like this disgusting character. <laughs> I had no idea it was the same actress. I can't believe, I couldn't believe it. She's a nightmare on Elm Street too, right? She's, yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff. She's she, a good, that guy. She's Bob Shea's sister. She's the founder of New Line's sister, which is how she, oh got, my God. how she got into Nightmare on Elm Street. And she she's talked about this, but she's like, Probably one of the most recognizable female that guys, so to speak, that, that we have in movies the last thirty years. She's been in a ton of stuff, and it's like her and is it Barbara Compton? Like, like the the two big, they're the two sort of iconic horror actresses who are still working. Crampton, Barbara I think Crampton. she may yeah, be the Crampton. number one female that guy. Could be. I was looking at her IMDb. I was like stunned. I couldn't believe it. She, but she had something happen to her that I think a lot of other women of her generation had happened. Like Margot Martindale was like this too, where Margot Martindale became Margot Martindale. 
you know, like mm-hmm. she because of TV. And Lin Shay kind of became Lin Shay. She's in all of these Insidious movies and they've all been successful. So I think she's probably best known for all this now, even though she's been in a bunch of big movies in the past. Yeah, she was in all the Insidiouses. She was in Kroll Show. I mean, she's in all over the Farewell, Mrs. Kringle. I mean, she wasn't in a lot of great... Man, her IMDb goes She does on. like seven she's movies She's working a like 10 a year. Yeah. Um. Anyway. More uh, more categories. The Vincent Hanna Give Me All You Got Award. Chris, who do you have for this one? I think I'm going to go Elise. I think that she brings she brings a lot into it. it the, I can't really think of another... I, unless you want to go with some of the the, the ghosts. I, I don't think Specs or Tucker really overact, really. I actually couldn't come up with one for this. I felt like everyone kind of properly acted. I feel like the face licker is kind of going for it. Yeah. Mm, great one. <laughs> great call. Face licker. Uh, the Judd Nelson Award for person who seems like they're in a different movie. I, I couldn't find a nominee for this one. Maybe the face licker. Maybe he wins both of those. <laughs> <laughs> a 40-40 season for the face licker. The Dion Waiters Award could also go to the face licker. I think Joseph Bashar has got a bid for that as the, the, as the red-faced demon. Yeah. Hershey, eh. Is that, she, she, I felt like she left it on the table. It was hers to win. I don't know if she won it. I feel like Specs and Tucker are, because they're the thread now in these movies. Like mm-hmm. they appear in all four of the Insidious movies. They play a and big Lee part Wan-El in them. And Lee is one of them, right? And Lee Wan-El, who wrote yeah. the movie and is a, a great horror director and made the invisible man and uh or and also made um what was the what was the terminator inspired movie that he made chris what's that called upload what was uh, it upgrade. upgrade upgrade yeah yeah he's like a really creative guy and it's weird that he is one of, really one of the stars of the most successful horror franchises so i feel like those two guys together could be up for it mm-hmm. recasting couch i I actually like the way this movie was cast i think the little boy it would be fun if it was somebody who was a famous person now well, Ty Simpkins went on to do some other stuff, right? I guess. Did he? I don't know. What did he do? I don't know. It'd be fun if he was like Jacob Elordi or Noah Centineo now or somebody like that. You're actually like, oh, that, that guy was in Insidious. Oh, he was oh, a kid from Avengers. Iron Man 3. Yeah, he was in Iron Man 3. Yeah. yeah. Half-ass internet research. Not a lot about this movie, but um, in the Josh's classroom scene, because this was such a low-budget movie, James Wan was like, fuck it, and just put a whole bunch of Easter eggs in that scene. So, like, his name's on the chalkboard. Different people from the cast. There's some stuff from Saw. They just put a whole bunch of stuff in there to amuse themselves. And then the old woman demon, which was played by a man, um, it wasn't until the sequel that they actually decided this character was a man dressed as a woman. Mm-hmm. So, do you like the opening sequence where it's basically the flashback to Patrick Wilson's character as a kid in the house, and then it, you know, the camera follows through the house, and then they show the old woman? Do you think that that worked? I didn't mind it. I don't know. I, I, do, could you have done the movie without that scene? Yes. Yeah, maybe, but I think it also like you. You kind of want to front load one scare into the first fifteen minutes of a horror movie. Mm-hmm. If you go out, you're just like completely dry, and it's just them moving in and her being like, "Where's my sheet music?" It, I think it takes a little while to get to that, and like you get to get the the scary strings in the first two minutes of the movie. So I, I like it. Apex Mountain, Patrick Wilson, no. Rose Byrne, no. James Hahn. You could argue... James Wan? Uh, James Wan. I don't know why I wrote Han. James Wan. Uh, you could argue this movie sets up... Basically, he's this. I think this is his apex mountain because he's already had success with this other stuff. He's pigeonholed. He breaks out of it with this movie that makes 100 times what they spent. 
And that opens the door for him to do whatever he wants after that. So I would say yes. More than Furious? More, more than Furious 7? Well, it, but it leads to Furious, though. Okay. Right? It's a tricky one. Because is it not The Conjuring? And the Conjuring is so much more of a blockbuster, it seems like, right? I mean, which, it's obviously which, it's Conjuring for his Apex Mountain. Do well, you guys have a preference between the You're right, the two it is Conjuring, because then that leads to Fast Because the fast Conjuring six. made three times as much money as this movie. It, it cost $20 million, so it was more of a mainstream production, but... I, the Conjuring, I feel like, is a more... It's a better movie. It's a, it's yeah. a more significant contribution. I like, to the, I like the Conjuring genre. franchise, too, more than Insidious. I think I gave up on Insidious around three. I did, too. I, in retrospect, I wish we had done this movie first, then The Conjuring on Rewatchables. We kind of did it backwards, but that's fine. Do you think James Wan, do you think his, he lives in uh, like a one-story apartment in New York City with a lot of daylight that has no <laughs> weird places in it at all? That, Constantly wearing noise-canceling headphones so he doesn't hear yeah. any creaks. Yeah. There's no way he's in like a five-story Victoria mansion like in Echo Park. I just if, don't see it. If I'm him, I rent. Yeah. Uh, Apex Mount for astral traveling or would you go with another? another Astr- astral projection having a big moment in the Netflix series Behind Her Eyes. So, oh, yeah. You know, like it's definitely back in, in the headlines for sure. Mm. Sean, have you ever tried that? I'm doing it right now. <laughs> jo- Joseph Bashera, Apex Mountain. I think so. He's 100%. the demon and the score at the same time. Yeah. Has to be. This would be like if Johnny Greenwood also, also like acted in There Will Be Blood. That's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, pick and Nits. I we covered it earlier, but how do they not notice the fucking weird figure in the different pictures? It just seems like checking out your kid's drawings. Well, also like when Patrick Wilson notices the drawings and the kid has dra- drawn the figure into a lot of his drawings, like that's just a red flag. Is if there's anything ever wrong with any of my kids, I'm checking the drawings. But if Patrick Wilson's already has the evil being lurking inside him, the kid, why would he care? Yeah. It's like Rose Byrne didn't notice it? Rose Byrne shouldn't have noticed it. Rose Byrne, to me, is the one that uh, is just a terrible mother in this movie for a lot of different <laughs> I was reasons. Waiting for really, this. really down on her mothering. <laughs> like, have at it. It's your pod. Let's hear it. <laughs> Look, your job as a parent is to protect your kids. Uh huh. I don't feel like her protection standards were nearly high enough. And as soon as we're moving into the new house and things are still fucked up, I'm just not moving into that house. I'm sorry. I'm not. Your goal is not to put your kids in danger. If you think something's wrong with the house, you should all be sleeping in the same room. It's not one of those, all right, good night, honey. I'll see you in the morning. Maybe I'll make you some scrambled eggs. Hopefully the fucking demon won't come back tonight. <laughs> see you later. Like, who does that? You're all sleeping in one bed. There's There's sleeping bags on the floor. Bill, let's circle back to your family. Um, you've, sh- yeah. you've shown your son hundreds of horror movies at this point. How many yeah. times has he come home from school with a Crayola drawing of a demon? Oh, zero. And by the way, it, anyone else in his class who would be like, hey, Jackson Nelson drew this crazy elaborate portrait of a demon today. It kind of freaked all of us out. We'd be like, what? He's not sleeping over. <laughs> That's not happening. So I don't know. I, I, thought, I thought the mothering in this movie was pretty bad. Um, how does Elise know Dalton is not in a coma and was born with the ability to astral travel? How do you just kind of summon that? Like she's basically figuring out uh, John Hollinger's PR formula. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, but it's because she knows Dalton's father, right? And she went through this already. That's yeah. how she knows. She had a, had a relationship with the mother. So that's when they bring that back. 
how did they know astral? Tra- how does anyone know astral well, traveling? Well, that's just a, a thing. Yeah, that I mean, is like, a great that's question. Like you have to make that. You have to just to sort of accept that as like a price of entry. She's like a spiritual medium. You know, she's she's like the 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 lady with the glasses and poltergeist. How does that lady know that Carol Ann is you know in the TV? She she knows. She's connected to the other world. I feel like we give spiritual mediums a lot of leeway in these horror movies. <laughs> yeah, like a lot. <laughs> It's one of those that just skimped over how they would do when they When they were talking to Specs and Tucker and Elise, and it seems like Josh is like, okay, I'm just going to hit you up with your 600 bucks. That's not a, you, you know, you, are we really seeing enough paranormal possessions where 600 bucks per exorcism is going to pay the bills? Well, they have a Patreon pod too. That's so, true, you know, right? that's, how they're, that's how they're paying the bills. <laughs> For gold members. <laughs> uh, another pick and nits for me. So this is something that bo- has bothered me in more than this horror movie. Little kids do not want to go in the attic. They'll do this thing where it's like, oh, little Bobby's in the attic. Oh, I fell off the ladder. Kids don't go in attics. Just period. It's it's a deal breaker. Kids don't want to be in an attic unless it's like a completely finished, refurbished, kind of a playhouse type of attic where it just seems like a room in the house. The creepier the attic, the less likely they're going in there. There's no way this little kid's like, yeah, I'm just going to go hang out in the attic today. Well, okay, so let me ask you about this. So does he go into the attic? This is the mechanics of the story. Does he go into the attic because he's already kind of being, possessed? Being like called there, right? Yes. Or does it happen when he goes up there? Like, does he I, go- See, I felt like it happens when he goes up there and he hits his head. That starts this whole thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an element of it that is hereditary and is eventually going to happen to him anyway. But you're right, Sean. Like, I don't know whether or not that's like a chicken or the egg thing with the attic. Um, any other pick and nits for you guys? I, I mean, the divorce papers are signed the first time Patrick Wilson doesn't come home when she's just like, you need to get get home right now. And he's like, oh, yeah. just uh, just just really, it's just grading papers. They need me to grade papers. It would just be like, then your shit is on fire on the lawn. Yeah, she's like, we're all in the bathroom right now and the door's locked <laughs> and we're running a shower to get steam so we can try to steam out the demon. You're going to be back by 10, you think? <laughs> it's like, ah, hold on. <laughs> Two more papers. It's not like this guy works for, you know, the Department of Justice or something. No. He's a high school teacher. He's not, like, he's not working the Mueller report. He's yeah. like, <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? Yeah, I think I feel like it has been. Yeah, haunting a we've, house. We've done versions of Insidious as Netflix shows. I think what, what's that? House on Haunted Hill or whatever. Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, Hell, Haunting of Hill House. That's like a blown out version of this. Um, probably unanswerable questions. Why does the wife always know something is wrong with the house before the husband does? Um, I think that's a not so subtle commentary on a woman's connection to her family and her living space as opposed mm-hmm. to her busy husband. Right? That seems pretty overt. You notice that it's never the hu- it's never the husband trying to convince the wife that something's wrong. It's always the husband not believing, not trusting it. It's become some wrench in the relationship, and then they all kind of align by in the last third of the movie. No, the only husbands who are tapped into that kind of thing are crazy authors who are like, "This thing is unlocking my creative potential, so we can't disturb the the, the horror part, of, the the haunted part of it." Um, what, any other unanswerable questions? Um, where does, where does the, uh, where does Ty Simpkins's character rank in the, the possessed kid power rankings? I wanted to ask you guys about that. 
It's a good one. Good question. Uh, Jody from Anvilleville Horror playing with the kid in her room and the rocking chair going back and forth is way up there for me. I isn't Danny from The Shining number one. I mean, what about Reagan? Was from he possessed? The Exorcist. Reagan from The Exorcist is she's like the oh, that's Zion Williamson of this. Yeah, I would. So I would actually argue Rushmore. that Dalton is not that impressive of a possessed kid. He spends most of this movie. Asleep. That's why I wanted to recast him. I, I feel like we could have done better with Dalton. Sorry, Dalton, if you're listening. I don't know. I just Ty Simpkins. Sorry about that. What about the good son? Oh, I don't know if he's actually possessed or. You name the time and date for the good son rewatchables. <laughs> I am there. That's, that's I am ready. That's season nineteen as well. What piece of memorabilia would you want from this movie? The gas um, mask. Nothing. It's a yeah. horror movie. You'd want the gas mask. Yeah, just just. I mean, that's the only like memorable piece of. What would you use it for, Chris? Just hanging you know, out. You and Laramie? Just watching the NCAA Laramie. tournament? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who won the movie for you guys? Well, the, 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 the guy who did the score and the ghost is pretty pretty high up there. I think Rose Byrne. James Bashara? <laughs> Rose Byrne wins it for me just for her performance. I think it's a really, really good mother in terror performance. I have James Wan. Okay. He, he completely... Uh, changes the course of his career and changes the horror movie genre with one choice, which is basically, I don't want to be pigeonholed as a saw guy. I think there's a case for Lynn Shea. Mm. Ooh, Sean. Because she gets to be the star of this series of movies now. And she gets to make these movies for 10 years. And she gets to go from, oh, it's that woman, that guy, woman, to, to Lynn Shea. Yeah. To the star of Insidious and to like a linchpin of horror movies. She's been in a bunch of horror movies since these movies because she's a recognizable quantity. I like that. I have a special guest for the end of the Insidious podcast. It's Ben Simmons. Craig is no longer the youngest person on this pod. Wow. Ben. His dream was to be a possessed little boy. A um, <laughs> couple questions for you, Ben. Do you ever go to the attic just for fun? No. That's a bad idea. Would Do you know any kid your age who would ever go in the attic? No. No one does that. Um, <laughs> ever. Ben, even when you were really young, you were never kind of curious? No. Never. I watched, my I watched my first horror movie when I was like seven years old, and it was The Omen. After that, I never went in any dark places ever. Bill, you were ridiculous. Seven? Um, when you're in the attic... No, I never go in that. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So that's your biggest flaw with this movie. Yeah. Um, if something was wrong with the house, would you sleep in your own room? No. I'd leave. I live on the streets. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the things we were saying was, when there's this much chaos happening in the house, why do the people then put their kids to bed in their own room? Exactly. You would sleep. You would sleep in the bed with us. I wouldn't sleep anywhere in the house. You'd be out. I'd be out. I'd be at my friend's house. I wouldn't want to be with no devil. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks, Ben. There you go. It's really a key attic moment there, which brings me back to my point. No kids go in the attic. Yeah, don't go in the attic. <laughs> Is this how me and Sean find out that we're done with this pod? <laughs> <laughs> It's been fun, but Ben is here. Yeah, Ben. Ben is, I mean, like, that was great, great content. I mean, I don't really know what Sean and I have to add anymore. I pulled him out of a Zoom class. It's one of the benefits of the pandemic. <laughs> wow. he, just, he, just, he just left class for five minutes. Nobody knew. Nobody was any wiser. Honestly, his takes were good. He, he, on point. Yeah, I think he's done with school. I think he's, he's arrived. <laughs> so next week on The Rewatchables, we are doing two movies. You're, you guys are involved in one of them. Okay. okay. 
it, and it's a one for us. The other one is a one for everybody, but the one we're involved with is a one for us. And we'll give a little hint to the to the listeners. It is a Michael Mann movie. Mm-hmm. There's only a few left. Yep, it's time. Public enemies, guys. We're doing Black it. Black hat, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something, Chris Ryan. And I, I say this, I say this not to provoke you. I say this not to excite you. I'm just saying this as a fact of what's happened the last couple of weeks. I've watched Black Hat two and a half times. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you're exciting me and provoking me. I'm titillated. Is the is the, is the Getty image still in there? <laughs> the problem with Black Hat is you need to watch it five or six times to actually understand <laughs> like what's going on. Like any great film. Like any oh great Once you can actually get a gather of the plot, which takes six times, it's actually a good movie. What? Sean, it just you, takes a while. Will you bankroll my mank that's just about the making of Black Hat? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Bank. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Called. When Hemsworth goes into the, the uh, Chinese restaurant and the guys show up, that's just a great scene. Stand by it. I was really good. astrally projecting when I saw that movie, so I don't remember anything about it, <laughs> um, other than it was incoherent. I did a a wiki thing on it, and it, they spent like seventy five million. It made like thirteen million dollars, which <laughs> yeah. thirty dollars of that was me and Chris. Yes, um, it's a day. legendary bomb. Apparently, Cr and I saw it together, and um, the moment when then the, there was like a Getty image. Uh, photo in the film that had like the the the, the watermark on it was, yes was was upsetting that was unfortunate michael mann is a genius I, it's nothing against michael mann that's just that's not his best work in my opinion well two next week including my uh michael mann movie next wednesday Do you have another you have a hint for the other one too the other one might have arnold schwarzenegger in it wow okay yeah you're finally so doing it you're finally doing twins <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. i'll see you guys next week Thanks, Bill.